You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Everybody, welcome back to the Ducks on the Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. The DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. everybody welcome to the ducks unlimited podcast i'm your host katie burke and today on the show i have call maker and collector brian byers welcome to the show thanks for having me so we are at i've done and i'm not sure what order these will come in but i've done a few i have like a little series of Palooza coming out and we are at Palooza. and can you explain just a little bit about why you come to Palooza and what your kind of goal is here and what oh how many years have you been coming too I've made every single year so, that John's had in Colapalooza. Okay, so each person has had, like, doesn't know, is it five years? Yep, this is the fifth year. Okay. So what has that been like over the five years? How's that changed? And what is your, like, what have you done here that's been, has it been the same every year? Or are you kind of... So John started out five years ago as kind of a get-together. Yeah. Um, and it, it's grown every year. Okay. Um, he's changed little things up and made it a little bit better every year. So it's not the same activities year after year after year. There's always something new, something fresh. Okay. Um, we came the first year and everybody was kind of get the feel of how it was going, what was there to do and things like that. And then the second year we started to call build offs and that's why I came down for the second year. So, okay. So that has been mentioned a couple of times. Can you explain what the call build offs are? Like I've never, this is the first time I've ever been to an event that has a call build off. So it's a lot like um, on like TV shows, you see like Forge and Fire or Biker Build Off or cooking shows that have the time competitions and things okay. like that. So this is our version of that to build a call with certain criteria in a certain amount of time. So how long do you have? So Does the it years, change? it changes every year. Okay. Um, it depends. The first two years we had it, we had teams of four okay. against another team of four. Okay. And then that was the first two years. Then the third year they had eight guys one-on-one okay bracket style and then this year they've got teams of two two on two okay and how long do they have this year uh i think they've got four hour sessions to build one call will that be like a highly detailed call in the four hours or will that be like what will that turn out as so this year they have two parts they've got a decorative style element to it on a working call So most of the judging will be focused on the sounds coming from the call. Okay. But there's also a decorative aspect to it. Okay. So one call maker of the team is dedicated towards sound and one 
the other team member on is dedicated towards the decorated. Okay. Okay. So yeah, so that's so that's how they've been paired up. So does John pair people up or do y'all like, can you like enter as in, and you join with a team or how's that, how do you pick who's going to go with who? So Ronnie Turner's in charge of selecting the team members and okay. several of us kind of feed Ronnie names of who would be good and he pairs them up. Oh, cool. So I saw they're in the, the studio down there making. John's shop. Yeah. So yeah. Um, when will you judge? When will that be over? When will that judge? I think they're judging the last call. So yesterday, which have been Thursday, there's one team went for four hours in the morning. One team went for four hours in the afternoon. Today, they're doing the same thing. Okay. And then tonight, they're judging those calls. Okay. And then the top two, then they'll get to go tomorrow, and then they'll build another call tomorrow. So, it's like a bracket as well. Yep. That's a lot so of call making. Yeah. yeah. So, it's two rounds. Okay. That's interesting. Are you in it this year? No. Took, no. Took Does the that feel off. nice to not have to do it, or you wish you were doing it? A little bit of both. <laughs> this year, I typically I do some seminars down here and teach some classes. Yep. Do the build off, but this year I'm just taking it easy. Yeah, that's nice. All right. Well, um, that's cool. Since you're just taking it easy this year, do you, did you bring any calls? Are you showing any of your calls at all? Or I'm right now in the process of moving houses. Okay. And so my shop is in two different places and yeah. not functional. So I didn't really bring. I brought a couple calls, but yeah, not normally what I did. Bring, you bring so. anything to like trade? I did. Okay. Because you're also a collector. So yep. I figured you were like, do you have your eye on something? And... I've, I've looked at everything here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So that was kind of, we went off a tangent, but let's go back and let's kind of go back to where you started. Like, where did you get started hunting? What was that like um, growing up? And then like, when'd you get into waterfowl and all of that? The whole backstory. The whole backstory. So I grew up in the Northeast corner of Kansas. Okay. Um, we were outdoor family. Um, dad always took us hunting, fishing, wherever. Um, and then I graduated K-State and then moved to Illinois and transplanted there and had no idea who anybody was. Yeah. Okay. Started from completely from scratch. Whereas posed back when I, where I grew up, I had access to a lot of different places. I knew a lot of people around home could go about where I needed to, to do whatever I wanted, but now I'm starting over from scratch. Okay. Um, I got into making coyote calls first. And okay. so I made my own coyote calls to call in coyotes. Why? Why? How did you get into coyote calls? Um, I wouldn't even think about like having a call for a coyote. I don't know why. I never even thought about that. that so they used sense. to, so I grew up out in country yeah. and they used to wake me up at nighttime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I started making coyote calls to kind of call them in and uh, got addicted to calling, you know, animals. And then I read a Field and Stream article way back when, and it said how to teach or how to uh, uh, build a turkey call. Okay. And so it taught me how to build turkey call and went through all the steps. And so I built a turkey call to try to call in a turkey. Yeah. Did it work? It did. It wasn't very good, (laughs) but it it did work. It did work. (laughs) And then moved to Illinois and there wasn't a whole lot of coyotes around. Right. But there's all this waterfowl. Yeah. It's a yeah, rich area for waterfowl. Yeah. And building coyote call is not that much different than a duck call. Okay. And so then so, I kind of switched gears and started building waterfowl call. What's a coyote call look like? Does it look kind of like a crow call? It takes uh, the insert out of a duck call, uh-huh. and that's pretty much a coyote call. Okay. Yeah. So I feel like I've seen one. I'm trying to remember if I've seen one, but 
I feel like Herders made one. Did they make one? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, so that's how you get. So at what point, at any point were you like, when you started making a duck call, were you aware of the heritage in Illinois of call making? Yeah. Yeah. It's just so rich in history. Yeah. So that would came up, that come across kind of early in your call making? Yeah. yeah. So um, where did you start? Were you waterfowling hunting in Illinois pretty early or how did that become? How'd you get hunting in Illinois? Like so a few of the guys I work with, I okay. said, hey, take me hunting. I'll give you a call. Really? And okay. so that's how I kind of built some friends around the area and then how, how I kind of got access to certain places to go with yeah. them, you know, was their farms and stuff. And so one of the farms that we were hunting coyotes on, it also, it would flood when the water would get real high. Yeah. And we sat there and called in ducks on the same place that, you know, a week or two before we would call coyotes because yeah. it was dry. So Yeah, okay. That makes sense. So, yeah, and I guess because you said you work at Caterpillar, so that you, you would have some hunting people in that. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like yeah, it depends on where depends on where you're hunting. It depends on if you're, hunt, if you're working somewhere else, you may not have any hunters. But, um, so what part, are you in Southern Illinois? Like, where are you located? Where are you hunting mostly? Well, right smack dab in the middle. Yeah, right in the middle. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So what were your calls? How did your calls, so when you first started making duck calls, how did they, what were they like when you first began? And then how did they evolve? They started pretty plain. Pretty plain. Just simple woods. And then I started seeing some guys doing some checkering work. And so I was like, hmm. I try that. I want to see how that would be. And so I had a real good friend down in Grafton. Okay. Um, his name's Wes Townsend. And then had a couple more buddies in Tennessee, Billy Hayes and Bob Weisman. Yeah. And they taught me how to checker. And then I kind of got that under my belt a little bit for a few years. And then I said, all right, Wes, I want you to teach me how to carve. So then Wes taught me how to carve. And, and you found that easy? Like, I found, like, now, like, we were talking about this, uh, I was talking about this, while we're here with other people, but you know, call making historically people wouldn't help others like in the older days. And but you found it fairly easy to find someone to kind of like mentor you or help you through the process early on. Yeah. So if you showed a little bit of effort, okay, you know, they older guys would you know see that you're taking interest in it and help you along. Okay. They weren't going to just spoon feed you information. Right. Okay. You know, if you didn't show any interest or show any effort to put towards it, then yeah. they're not going to waste their time. All right. So I guess like, I feel like, okay, I think it was Mike Lewis. This was a long time ago. So I'm probably going to butcher the story, but I think it's actually on a podcast episode. So if you want to listen, you can go back. But he was telling me, um, Billy Sparks, he said that he tried to get him to show him what he was doing and he wouldn't. And then he had to go make a call and bring it back to him. And basically Billy would be like, this is wrong with this. Like, tell him what he did wrong. And then you have to go back by himself and try again. And that's how eventually, like, he did it enough times that Billy was like, okay, I'll help you through it. But Yeah, you had to show interest. Yes. And then the old guys would help you. Okay. But that was probably old school. That was probably before 1980. That's kind of how it was. Yeah. The guys back then, they were tight-lipped. Yeah. You know, it was competition to them. Yeah. You know, they didn't want more people making calls because that would take sales away from you. And so when you were, what kind of calls were they making at that time that you were first learning from them? Were they doing just like the wood decorative stuff? Are they, are they even like venturing into the acrylics or anything? Like where, where's all this coming? Uh, mainly woods. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's about when stabilized woods were starting to kind of come in okay. a little bit. But only, or mostly, it was woods. Okay. Simple, you know, hedge, you know, African blackwood, cocobolo, yeah, yeah. those simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I have, this is kind of a different question, but I was talking with someone not long ago, like on the decoy side, like when we're talking about the old the old gunning decoys, like they were really, people were makers were making all these gunning decoys for people to hunt over. And then the plastic decoys came out and then carvers kind of shifted gears to do the more decorative carving just to kind of keep their business going. And then there's been a tradition like of going back into the gunning. What was that like for calls? Like as for call makers, did that, did this shift when the acrylic mass produced when they were coming out, did that change focus for custom call makers at all or were you no, they just kind of got to move really. through it yeah yeah it's kind of some guys like you know the acrylics yeah because they don't change sound like with moisture like right you just you know if you're say someplace like arizona right uh-huh. you build a call there it's got a certain humidity level and then you go to the marsh like in arkansas and you get all that humidity and then that wood changes shape and then that changes the sound and everything where acrylic won't do that yeah so that's kind of how acrylic has a little bit more of a benefit okay as you're changing major locations but do you have to think about that when you're making the call about where it's going to be used absolutely i never even thought about that that makes sense i mean i think about that like in the terms of like you know restoring or not really restoring but like conserving these like wooden items like I have to think about you know I don't want it to swell and shrink and swell and shrink because that can break the call but yeah I didn't think about it like even I guess how much does moisture from your mouth have to play into Um, big time big time so we have a big competition for the NWTF in Nashville yeah and at the Opryland Hotel they have massive dehumidifiers in the conference area that we hold the competition and there's calls wood calls that go there that get dried out because that dehumidifier and they crack. I mean, this is artwork pieces of calls. Yeah, that's really a nightmare. You know, it's it's crazy what that humidity will do to the wood. Yeah, and I guess, how are you preparing for that ahead of time? Since you know when you're going to put a call on to the competition, you know that's going to happen. So how what do you change in your making to prepare for that? You have to know what woods you're using Okay. You can't use fresh cut wood because okay. that's got a high humidity, high moisture content. Okay. You have to know that it's dry. You okay. have to know how long it's been dry so it's stable to where it, when it does adjust, it does move a little bit. It's not going to make major movements okay. where it's going to crack. Yeah. Because I mean, like, it's hard to say this on a podcast because it's not visual, but like the detail in some of these, it's, I mean, the wood, they get down to like the finest little. Because some of them are 3D and I can't imagine. Yeah, I never even thought about it. The worst is is when you laminate woods together. And oh, they, yeah, they move at different rates because they're different densities. And like the laminated division is always the toughest. Okay. Because the judges are always looking for cracks or gaps or differences in okay. height in the woods of your laminations. So, yeah, you're having to think about that. Your car. So, what you're saying is basically for the competition, like at certain competitions, you're carving, you're thinking about that entry on how it will re- react there. Because technically, you don't need it to react well once you bring it home or you sell in it. Like, I guess if you're selling it, that's a different situation. But... Yeah, it's more about what your your environment where you're going. Yep. 
I never even thought about that. Little things like that <laughs> yeah. make big differences. Yeah. So that's, I mean, so you're having to plan that out. How far in advance are you starting to think about? Do you enter every year for mm-hmm. NWTF? So how far in advance are you thinking about what you're going to do that year? My laminated calls are done six months ahead of the contest. Okay. So they have a chance to acclimate adjust, move, settle in. Yeah. And then I do that final sanding the week or two before the competition sent them off. So you kind of, okay. So I, my gluing and everything is done, shape and everything is done six months ahead of time. Oh, wow. Do you think everyone does that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they might now that they hear this. <laughs> That's funny. I, yeah, I never thought about that. I don't know why. I just didn't, I guess I just didn't think to think about it, but yeah, you would have to. Yeah. It's so different. Um, and I'm sure it's the same with like decorative decoys as well, because they're so like, but they're, it's too blow gum. So that's a different situation though, because that they don't really, I mean, they pretty much all use two blow gum. I want to go back to when you're starting out making calls and you're making mostly smooth calls to hunt with and things yep. like that. So what are the first calls you're seeing that are like, well, you talked about a little bit of checkering. So you start checkering calls, doing a little bit more. What are you looking at for inspiration? Where are you like, what are you being inspired by early on? And how is that evolving now? So you always look to kind of see what your predecessors have done. Get inspired, you know, from their work. Put your twist on it. You know, make it look like your work to where you're not copying their work. But a lot of my calls have got major inspirations from the guys okay. that I learned from. Yeah, I mean, you well, that's can see art in general. My yeah. stuff looks a lot like theirs, but in my own different way. Yeah. And so I'm a very visual, want to hands-on do something type of guy. And so I say, hey, I see that. I want to try to see how he did that. And I try to figure out his tools and, and things yeah. like that and, and try myself and, you know, put my feet in his shoes to see what he went. Right. It makes sense to me, honestly. Like, and I don't, I'm not an artist or I, yeah, I gave up all that a long time ago. But I understand like you play with a certain style of what someone's doing. And then, I mean, you're just, you're learning that style. And then you learn that. Then you, once you can like do what they're doing or to some extent, then you can play with it and have more freedom with it. Right. Like it takes, you can't, it, you can't, it's easier to like try it and then change, then learn a different thing and then change it to what you want than just trying to just do what you want Yeah. first. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I always like people... Learn, learn the basics first and then explore and expand. Yes, exactly. Because it's just people always are like, I think it's not just call making, but art in general. Like it's all, all of it is, is just looking at your predecessors, repeating what they're doing and then you will put your own stamp on it because you're not them. You're a different person. You have a different perspective. You have, you're using, you're hunting in different areas. I mean, you have all these other things that come in to change it. So yeah, it makes sense. I don't think people should be so scared to copy what people before have done. Does that make sense? To to a point, you don't yeah. want to just blatantly copy right, no, no, stuff. Like, yeah, but, yeah. Like, but yeah, but, learn the basics and then put your put your spin, put your stamp, put your personality yeah so okay this is where i don't know anything about call making walk me through like how you figure out what sound you want that you like does that change does that change continuously how does that work from when you first started making it just to kill ducks versus like how have you changed the sound and how does 
How does that process work? I don't really understand that part of it. I'm not a musical person. I know it's basically a musical instrument. It's all kind of how you hear it and how you want it to sound. Okay. So you start with, you know, going to several places and trying different calls. Okay. See how they sound. I don't like this. But then you start playing around with it. Hey, if I trim the reed here, if I cut this, if I sand here. And then you start through the whole learning process. There's, I don't know how many different variables that affects how a duck call sounds on the yeah, tone that's what I, that's where I get confused because it feels like, I feel like you would start messing with it and like, it it's would be- It's its own rabbit hole that you can go down and yeah. spend years at. Okay. So how much does having an ear for it, Matt? I'm guessing it's really important. Yeah. Does just any little thing change the sound? Like, is it very small movements that change the sound or is it- Thousands of an inch. Thousands of an inch. It really is. I mean, there's certain places where the fibers, if they get wet, the wood fibers, and when wood meets moisture, fibers Mm -hmm. raise in certain woods, like walnut especially, it's bad. Yeah. Those fibers, when they raise up, then they lift the reed up and it completely changes the sound of the color. Oh, wow. So you're having the... Microscopic changes, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then are you just like, are you blowing it so then that moisture gets in there so then you can see what happens when... And you're trying everything in your power to minimize all of those external effects so they don't affect how it sounds long-term. So that's that's, where your stabilized stuff comes in. That's where your finishes come in. That's where, you know, certain woods are better than other woods because they don't change over time. They don't change with moisture. It's almost like a science. Oh, it's absolutely. (laughs) That's really interesting. Yeah, it's so much more complicated than I think people realize. So do you still make anything without stabilized woods or you just stay with stabilized woods now? How does that work? I haven't done stabilized woods. Oh, you never have? I I have have? a little bit. So you but like the more traditional, yeah, yeah. Once they make the pattern and they have made the decoy, now, oh, there's carvers out there that never repeat a pattern, but you know they know what it's going to do, right? They have figured out how, and they can always add different personalities and things because they're, especially if they're doing like the hand chopped and things like that, that's different. But they basically know what they're going to get. So once you create a pattern for a call, like, can you? Is it the same? Like you can recreate it, or is it because it's a different piece of wood? Is it going to just be a a different beast, like every time you go through it. I hate doing every different things multiple times the same way. Okay. I want my calls, I like all of them to be a little bit different because doing two of the same thing is boring. Okay. <laughs> every one of my calls is just a little bit different. Yeah. Okay. Like even like, but well, I guess my question is though, if you're, if you did do it a li- the same way, would you have to change because it's a different piece of wood with the, for the sound, would it, no, it wouldn't be the same, right? Because you would have to, because you say it's a thousandth. So like yeah. you'd have to change it and to it's tweak. A lot by ear. Visually, it all can look the same. You can go through the same process, but until you start blowing the call, seeing what's going on, see how it hear, when you're here and listen and see how the reed's uh-huh. reacting and all that stuff. Hey, I need to clip here on the reed or I need to sand right here. It could all visually come off your jig absolutely the same. Okay. But until you put a reed and cork in and start blowing it, it's then you're starting to do everything by ear. Okay. So you're just fine tuning it, fine tuning it. Do you ever fine tune it too much? And then you're oh, like, you can oh. do that. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, and you, trash. Yep, there it went. 
one swipe of the file sometimes it will go from almost there to terrible in the trash it goes so i'm guessing you're making sure you're not uh, etching or any of that stuff until you have the sound just right yeah. uh yeah you're fine-tuning it down and then yeah it can go in the trash so let's take a little break right here and we'll come right back Stay tuned to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, after these messages. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. All right, welcome back. All right, so we've talked in detail about making, which we'll probably fall back into it, but you're also a collector. When did you start collecting calls? And how did that, yeah, what's your evolution in that part of your call? When I started making the predator calls, I started collecting predator calls just to see how other people were making stuff. And I found it interesting, you know, the handcrafted stuff. It's so unique. It's so individualized. It's so neat to see how everybody makes their stuff. Right. And then it just evolved into collecting duck calls too. Okay. So when I started first making duck calls, went down to the, we had a big show down at Real Foot Lake mm-hmm. the first week in October. And then we would trade calls. Us call makers that kind of grew up together, that same generation were, that started about the same time, we'd all go down and we'd all trade calls. Okay. And that's kind of how my collection started. Um, and you collect everything or what are, what are your primary focuses as you collect? I started mainly trading. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't sell a whole lot of calls because I was more interested in trading. Okay. Um, and then it graduated into I would sell a few here and there. Um, and then for the longest time, I kind of stayed away from the older de- or the older duck calls. Okay. I didn't know a whole lot about them. Yeah, they made you nervous. Like uh, made you know, yeah. nervous. I didn't know much about them. They didn't really interest me because my focus was new contemporary stuff. Okay. But then as I got exposed to the older calls, I could identify the old calls. I started doing stuff that like checkering. Yeah. But then I started finding the old checkered calls fascinating. Yeah. So then I started collecting old checkered calls. And then I started migrating into older brickwork calls. Okay. And because I started making brickwork calls. Yeah. And so it's just kind of in the old carve calls because I started carving calls. So... I wanted to see how my stuff compared to their stuff. Yeah. So one of the things that um, it's always talked about, like when you're collecting decoys, I always are like, put your hands on a decoy, like feel it, touch it, move around, look at it. And what I'm kind of getting when you say that is to make them as well or collect them, you need to like have that hands on, like you need to hold them. Pictures are okay, but there's nothing like, holding it right there in your hands and turning it all the way around and looking at it and from all the different angles and seeing how it spins around and just looking at all aspects of pictures just 
They're only one side of it. Yeah. And then they make it's breaking them open and kind of like seeing what the guts are like and everything yeah. like that. Yeah. Trying and to they, guess the tools that they use to make it because, I mean, they didn't have access to the nice power tools that we got now. Yeah. So how did they do this all by hand? Yeah. So did you start when you were working? Is that when you, did you start doing more things by hand as well because you were seeing them do it? Most and, of my checkered work still all by hand. Yeah. Uh, but my carvings I've got. You know, a, a couple hundred dollar Dremels, really. It's a power carver. Okay. So you're using dental bits and you're using power and to, to move all of the wood and remove the stuff. So, you know, Wes told me just carve everything away that doesn't look like a duck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I don't think I could do it. I, I grew up. I grew up going like, you know, painting and things like that. And it's like the opposite. Like you're building from, you're not, you're building up, not building down. And I don't know if I could, it just blows. I don't know. It's so different though. I saw that you painted for the first time yesterday and you weren't bad at it. I did. Uh, <laughs> every show here recently, we've had seminars or classes. Yeah. And I try to take or attend every single one of them that I can because you always learn something with them. Yeah. And I've never painted before. And when Joe Booker and Emily Booker, you know, I saw that they were doing this class. I'm like, I've got to take this. I want to try it. I want to see what that, because Joe makes some fantastic work and Emily's just right there. Yeah. And I've all, I've got a couple of Joe's calls in my collection and I just think that they're fantastic. Yeah. And I'm like, you can't appreciate the work that they do until you try it yourself. Yeah. You don't and, really and know how difficult it is until That's you, the same way that I was with checkering. You can't appreciate the checkering work until you try it yourself. Put yourself in their shoes to see what they went through. And then you're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. How long does it take you to checker a call? Uh, anywhere between four or five days to three months. It's funny, you know, like uh, this is off topic, but I think about, you know, the older shotguns have all the checkering on it and, you know, they do it by hand now, but... Man, if they still, I can't imagine. Yeah, I can't imagine like, you know, they're selling these out. Like, you're a custom maker, so I'm sure you have your order, and you know what you're, or you know what you're going to do, or you're going to put them. You don't. You, I don't take orders. You don't take orders. No, so I you, like to be creative and work on what I want to work on, and then whenever I get done, then I bring it to a show like this. Okay. Yeah. So, like, well, Stevens does the opposite. He takes an order and then he goes down. So you want to. So you're selling whatever you think is what you, I want to make. Yeah, what you want to make. That's a nice way of doing it. That's it, the it way turns, I could do. I could it, do it the other it way. It turns into a job if you got to take orders, and then it's no fun. Yeah. Because then you're like, oh, well, if I could go fishing this afternoon, but I got to work on these duck calls. Yeah. Hey, right, I want to go do this. No, but I got to work on these duck calls. And it just takes the like fun out of it. Yeah. Me. Yeah, I I hundred percent get it because that's when I started college. I was an art major and. I just stopped. I couldn't do it. I didn't like being told what to do. So it makes sense to me. I didn't realize that's how you were doing it. So you're just making whatever you want to make and then hoping somebody's going to buy it. Trade. <laughs> yeah, trade. Yeah, trade. So, um, okay. So, yeah, it takes you that long. So it's, yeah, I wish they still did it. Because the one thing I like about when I look at these old calls and you see the checkering, I like sometimes the imperfections on them, how they like got off the line. Cause I mean, it's so finite. So, I mean, it just makes, I don't know. It adds a humanity to it that they slipped. Yeah. And I like that. Do you like, does it drive you crazy if you slip on one? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> You're like, I'm not going to sell them that one. It bounces off the floor. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I do. I like that about him. I always look for it. Like whenever I hold an old checkered call, the first thing I'm going to do is try to find the the imperfections in it. And I think that's almost cooler than the being perfect sometimes. I try to be as perfect and as clean as I can be. You probably won't find too many of those. No, articles. well, you know, I find... I don't find in any of the contemporary ones you find any mistakes. It's usually the older ones, like, because they were doing it for a living or they were guides, so they're they're not, they're probably not taking the time that you're taking to get some of these checkers in. Yeah, because they're, like, there's some that are, you know, pretty sloppy, too. But they didn't have the nice tools that we got today. No, that's true. They, yeah. Some of them were making their own checkering tools. Yes. Do you have any old checkering tools? Have you no. collected those at all? Uh, I've kind of stayed out of that. Yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, because I didn't know. I know, like, with there is so many comparisons between call making and decoy making, and like that's the thing that's become like you know, like Cameron McIntyre, which I mean, he has collected all of his old, like it's all old tools. He doesn't use anything, barely anything new, and he's yeah. They're using all the tools they originally. But he's basically living like an old decoy. Carver, <laughs> but and which is he's a little bit he's a little bit unusual in that way. But yeah, it's it's interesting. Can you, as the maker, can you like talk about those like relation, like how those things relate in certain ways, like the call the comparisons between call making and decoy making? It's a lot of it's handcrafted, yeah. so there's a big parallel there. Yeah, and then there's competitions, right? There's duck call competitions, the artwork side of it, yeah, and then on the decoy side. So you've got, you know, does it float upright? Does it got to stay in the water for so long before it tips? Things like that. Yeah. On the decoy side where we have the same things on the, the call side. They study the artwork. You get judged on the artwork. You have, you know, a range of scale of is it good, is it bad? And then best of shows and decoy side, duck call side, it's just there's so many parallels between the handcrafted side of those two, it's it's very interesting how similar they are. Yeah, it's I talk about this a lot before, but as a maker, I'd like to talk to you about it because we, and I think I've done it in a few interviews, but you'll have a different perspective because you are a carver. So decoy, the gutting decoy community is just there's not as many. It's kind of it's decreased over time. There's not as many carvers out there. But it is not the same with calls. They have stayed pretty consistent and actually been growing. Almost exponentially growing yes. in the amount of people that have started making duck calls. So do you have a theory of why that is? Like why call making is growing in that way? The the tools that we have available are so prevalent. Okay. It makes it easier. Um, and then you just there's a lot of people want to call in a duck with the duck call that they made. But they don't want to hunt over their own decoys. No, it's I don't. There's, I guess they're heavy. If there's more work involved, or there's a perception that there's more work involved to make decoys. Yeah, is it just like size? I don't know. Could be. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've I've been thinking about that over the years, and um, you know, I talked to Mark a little while ago because he does the D NWTF competition, and we kind of came up with this theory, and I don't know what you'll think about it, but you know, okay, so. We described it as like with decoy making, they were all these people making gunning decoys and then plastic decoys came out and a lot of them shifted to more of the decorative stuff because the ward competition really kept that going, that side of decoy making because um, that was a good shift for them to continue to make money. 
And then now they're starting to go back to that tradition in the last 20 years of 15 years to gunning decoys. Um, but it hasn't really been that way. And we were wondering if we kind of put the theory, like because the competition has always been there to have, to help promote call making and celebrate call making and give some reward, if that had something to do with maybe the fact that it continued on and never, it didn't dip as much. It's just human nature to be competitive. Yeah. And you see what everybody else is doing and you want to do a little bit better and you want to see if you can beat them. Right. And so it's just the promotion of the contests getting a little bit better every year, a little bit better every year, a little bit better every year. It's just, it's just something to shoot for. Yeah. And, and reach for goals and Hey, I want to, I want to been the best of show this year. Yeah. I want to see if I can win such and such place at this competition. It just, set a goal and, and work towards it. And with yeah. these competitions that we have, there's there's three or four of them throughout the year and you just continually push yourself to get a little bit better. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so how long have you been like competing in the NWTF? Uh, I think 11 or 12 years. Okay. And um, so how many calls do you enter? Are you, like, do you, like, do you do different categories? Or you just stick to one? You pick what you're going to do? Primarily I do checkered division. Okay. Um, and then I'll do a carved or an open division. And then recently I've been putting in laminated division. Okay. Yeah. But more decorative side than the work and call side. Okay. And just, I don't, I'm think I know that. I don't even know if I know this, but everything is judged by sound, right? Is every category have like a, a little bit of a sound? The decorative side is judged with, by sound. Yeah. There is a category with that, but it's primarily focused right. on the artwork. Yeah, but it's you, like... But there just is like, an element of sound. Yes. Yeah. Like, just like with, like decoys, they have to float and sit upright. A duck call has to sound like a duck call. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's beautiful. Yeah. Do you... <laughs> this is a silly question. But on the really highly decorative stuff, like it's really decorative. Do you have to think... Do you even care what it's like when it hits their mouth? Like if yeah, it's super you still decorative? you have to pay attention to all those details. Yeah, yeah, even though it's got... Some of them will be like all rigid and bumpy and yeah, they'll have it really like decorative. But when you put it to your mouth, you don't want it to hurt. You don't want yeah. it to be... I think it's not comfortable. It's still got to be a duck call. Okay. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. I just think, because the ones we've had in the museum that are really decorative, and I don't, obviously I'm not going to blow somebody's duck call, but um, I think about that and I'm like, huh, I wonder what that feels like if they thought about it. Because some of them can be, yeah. There's some early ones that are a little bit rougher, but here, yeah. you know, the contemporary stuff, that's always a factor. Yeah. So how many different categories are there now at the NWTF? For calls, for duck calls. I think there's around, I think Mark would know better. I think there's around 10 divisions Is that for decorative okay. and like close to 15, 20 on the working side. Yeah, that's a lot. And how many people do you think are entering I think now? there was close to 50 okay. call makers in And how many when you started? Oh, half that. Wow. That's, that's huge. That's a big growth. Yeah. Does that make it more fun for you that you have more competition? Like, oh, I, yeah. that's what I would like about it. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's crazy is we're all friends. The yeah. guys that compete are all friends. And we push each other. But when we get down to it, we're all friends. Yeah. No, I I, I get it. This is a, an extreme, a different place. But I do, I'm an ultra runner and I run trail races. And yeah, it's a community. It's like... 
we're all pushing each other to do something really stupid and hard. I don't know why, but it's a community and that's part of it. And I'm sure for y'all it is too. Yeah. And they're like, well, and I talked to, um, actually the best I can think about it is I talked to, do you know who Gigi Hopkins is? So Gigi Hopkins is a, she is a bird carver. She's in her early 90s and she she wrote the Massachusetts decoy book and she used to restore decoys and she's a bird carver. But she talked about the first time she went to the ward competition. And, you know, this is before the internet and she didn't know of anyone else in the world that carved birds. She's lived in this insular environment where she's the only person she knew that did this. And she went to the very first ward competition and she met other bird carvers. And she describes it. She does a wonderful job describing like the excitement she felt to be around people that shared her interest, that did what she did every day, that they could share tips and things they had tried and failed and to have that just kind of ability to talk shop about something she didn't even know people were doing. And I'm sure it's similar. I'm oh, sure. It's very similar. Yeah. You're getting to finally like, you know, I did this this year and this is what happened. And and you can kind of be like, what do you think happened? You can kind of compare notes of why things happened the way they did. And yeah. So you're doing a lot. Do you do that when you're here at Call of Lucid? Do y'all get to like kind of think about this? Oh, oh yeah. There's not uh, decorative competitions here. No. Um, but a lot of the guys that do the decorative stuff are here and we talk and talk about old competitions and tell stories. And it's crazy how we're all on the same wavelength too of the styles and the techniques that we use. And we don't, sometimes we don't talk to each other, especially when we got a competition coming right. up. But when we turn in our entries, they're so similar because we're like on the same wavelength. <laughs> just because we know each other, we're friends for so long, we just think alike. Yeah. And we turn each other's entries in and we're looking. I'm like, how'd you come with that? How'd you come with that? And we don't even talk, but they're so similar. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm sure y'all keep it pretty tight until then. Yeah. And that's really fun. So in your time of entering the competition, the times that you've done well, like, did you know, did you have a feeling that that's how it was going to go? Or were you just surprised that, I don't know. Do you kind of have an idea going in, like, this is a winner? No. Yeah, none whatsoever? Nope. Because <laughs> it's always somebody's come up with something new with every single competition. Really? And it's just, are you going to have an idea that's better than the next guy? You know, and some of these guys are going two and three rungs up, you know, every competition where I'm going like one run up yeah. on the ladder. Yeah. And I'm like trying to catch these guys <laughs> and they're just like catching another gear going, pulling away faster than I am. Yeah. So it's, it's never have no idea what you're going to end up once you turn it in. Yeah. So you just, yeah, you just wing it in a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you get there? So y'all get to see everybody's once they turn them in and yeah. you're like, you're like, uh-oh. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yep. Oh, did you see what he did this year? <laughs> yeah. And then do you get to like get him to tell you about how he did it after? Will they, will, will they do it or will they keep it? Uh, depends on the person. Yeah. 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 A lot yeah. of us share. Some of us don't. Uh, some of us share quite a bit. Yeah. Well, you be able to handle the calls that get put in? Does everybody get to like pick them up and mm -hmm. things? Okay. Yeah. So you'll get to look at it and kind of. I'm guessing as someone who makes a lot of calls, you can 
guess, make some educated guesses when you see a call. So that that's the fun part. Okay. Where we can do something and the other guys can't figure out how we did it. <laughs> and then it drives them nuts. <laughs> yeah, they, then you don't want to tell them, I'm yeah. guessing. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think about that because, yeah, you're, I mean, you're both making like, yeah, educated guesses on what they did and how they did it. So do you like then go back to your shop and just start trying to figure it out? And sometimes that works out. I'm guessing, so in, when that happens, I'm guessing sometimes you figure it out and then sometimes you find. Another way to do it. Yeah. Or something new. Yep. So that's great. That's awesome because then that's how y'all are constantly pushing each other the calls are constantly getting better yeah yeah that's really cool i never thought about it so what what are you looking what are your kind of goals do you have any like i know you're in between like you're moving and you're not really thinking about carving right now but what are you kind of looking forward to like with your call making and like, what are you kind of like, what are your future plans going for? I really enjoy doing the decorative stuff. Yeah. Um, I try to enter every decorative competition that there is just to push myself to see how good I can do. Yeah. I really like teaching other people how to checker calls. Okay. Uh, the last two years down here at Call of Palooza, I've, I've had a four hour class okay. where we've had students come in and I teach checkering and I like to see the new guys starting to enter into the decorative side. They're learning yeah. the the decorative, the artwork side of the duck calls to where they're getting into that. So that's fun watching those guys start and evolve and getting better. Yeah. How many hours do you think you need to put in and checkering before you get good at it? Oh, it takes probably two or three calls worth to start getting a good feel for the call and, and the checkering tools of how they react to the wood and stuff. But I've been doing it for 12, 13 years now, and I'm still getting used to the tools. Put in your 10,000 hours, as they say. Yeah. yeah. Wear out three or four tools, <laughs> and then you may have a good start. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any advice for someone that's wanting to start um, getting into call making? Like, where would you, what, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about kind of moving in? There? Come to the shows that we have, talk to the guys that are there. The guys that are there are very willing to share, to help get you started. That's how I started. Yeah. I went to the Real Foot Show and learned so much from guys there. And then I'm just trying to pay it back. Yeah. So I talked to a few guys out here earlier this morning about getting them started checkering. Yeah. And so just come to the shows, show some interest, and guys will talk to you all day long. Yeah. Maybe do some reading up on duck calls before you get there. <laughs> Don't have to even do that. Yeah, that's funny. Um, that's one thing that I've gotten from a bunch of uh, like collectors. They're like, "Yeah, you need to go go read some stuff. Tell me you know something. Yep. <laughs> then we'll get, then we'll go from there." Um, all right. So, is there any last thing you'd like to leave with our audience that we haven't talked about? Uh, there's so much fun in collecting the calls. There's so many knowledgeable people out there that will help you on collecting duck calls. Um, come to the shows, talk to some people, uh, and learn it, enjoy it, because it's it's so much fun. It is. I, I do recommend it. This is my first time at a call-only thing. I've done to Chicago and stuff like that, but I haven't done just call blues, which is just calls. Well, thank you, Brian, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. All right. Thanks to our guests, Brian, and thanks to our producer, Chris Isaac, and thanks to you, our listeners, for reporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. 
Thank you for listening to the DU Podcast, sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, the official performance dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Purina Pro Plan, always advancing. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit ducks.org slash DU Podcast. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.